0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. So it was nice to have last Sunday off. Well, here we go. What is this sermon about today? Are you ready? Are you ready this morning? Are you ready for a new series? Because your your faces don't look like it. All right. Well, I'm going to start with a story. The story goes like this. There used to be a, a group of uh, scholars, very liberal scholars, and they would get together uh, every so often, like, you know, once or twice, uh, you know, once maybe every other month, and they would analyze and critique great pieces of literature. So they would look at, you know, masterpieces, things that we would all consider, you know, very prolific works do history. And one of those works, they would actually look at the Bible. They would look at different stories within the Bible When they evaluated the Bible, they didn't say it was a bad book, but it wasn't on par. Remember, a lot of these were, were very liberal. I don't want to get into a political discussion, but some of them were very skeptical. And they looked at the Bible and they said, it's a good book, but it's not on par with some of the masterpieces that we have seen written in the history of the world. Well, from time to time, they allowed people to actually give them, you know, written stories that people didn't know about. And, you know, people were apprehensive, right? As anyone would be with this group, they gained a reputation for being so critical. But time to time, people would, they would submit their stories. So there was this young man that said, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to submit my story. So writes his story out. It's a 15-page story. 15 pages. Submits it to this team. They get it. They, you know, one guy disseminates it to the rest of, of these scholars and analysts And they look at it over the course of the month, and then they meet, they gather together. And they all start sharing their insights, and they say, I don't know who this guy is, but this is an amazing book, amazing character development. Incredible. Role reversals. I mean, it's like a thriller. You're on the edge of your seat the whole time. So the guy reaches out to the kid and says, where did you think of this story? Where did you come up with this? And this is great. The kid says to him, I actually took the story from the Bible. All I did was change the, change the names of the people that were in the story. You want to know what story it was? Because this is where we're headed. It was actually the book of Esther in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, this is where we are going to be. And I love this, right? That you all, how many of you are familiar with this story? All right, a lot of you. How many of you saw the movie? Did you see the movie, Esther? It came out. Maybe a little bit over a decade ago, I was not a big fan of that movie, I'm sorry. I didn't think it was really well done. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I'm being honest with you. You know what the most memorable part of the movie was for me? Meg and I went to this movie, we were in the Patchogue Movie Theater, that dilapidated theater before it was shut down, and we're watching the movie, right? No, I'm not making this, we're watching the movie, and I see something scurry across the floor, And she looks at me and goes, did you just see that? I'm like, what? I saw it. I I saw it. I knew it was a rat. It was not a mouse. It was huge. It was the size of a small dog. But when you're in a movie and you're kind of into it, you're watching it, I didn't want to leave. She wanted to leave. And when your wife says to you, did you just see that? What? I didn't see anything. So I pretended I didn't see the huge rat running across the floor. And the best part is I made her stay for the rest of the movie. We bought tickets to the movie. I'm like, we might as well just stick it out, right? So I didn't really enjoy the movie, but this book reads like fiction. It reads like fiction, but it's not. It's nonfiction. It's a real story in history. I will start slow today. I'm going to spend a few weeks on this. I mean, and you don't find many people that actually preach on the book of Esther, Maybe somebody mentions her name. You all know the the title up here for such a time as this. You all know the famous phrase. I bet there's a lot of history in the story you don't know. And, of course, that's my bent. And I I feel as if you have to understand the context. You have to understand the history in order to really appreciate and understand the story. So if you're somebody and you're going, I've heard this story a thousand times. Good, because you're going to hear it a thousand and one, but you're going to hear it in a different way. And I'm going to try to bring some new insight. I started studying for this in maybe November. November. God just kind of put this on my heart. It was always a book I wanted to do, but started to study it. There's one great commentary. If you want to actually read a commentary on the book that's, that I, I guess everybody in, you know, scholars, commentators would say is wonderful, is by Karen Jobes. Again, no one's going to probably read that, but I just threw her name out there. Uh, who is the author of this book, in, of Esther? It, uh, by the way, it's in the Old Testament, right? It's after the book of Nehemiah, before the book of Job. Uh, There is no internal evidence for anybody that people will say Mordecai wrote it and Mordecai is going to be Esther's older cousin. There's no real internal evidence for that. We don't know, right? It's 2016. We do not have any concrete, tangible evidence to, to point to who the author of this book is. But again, it's a book that will take you on a wild, wild ride. It's an amazing story. And for seven centuries, how about this? This is a very controversial book in being canonized and becoming part of the Old Testament. Did you know for seven centuries, the first seven centuries of the church, not one commentary was written on the book of Esther? Not one. John Calvin, one of the most prolific preachers, you've all heard the name before, John Calvin. John Calvin preached zero sermons on the book of Esther. Martin Luther, how many of you know, right, right? Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther said the book should have been taken out of the Bible. He was disgusted by the book and said it had too many unnaturalities. Weird word, that's what he said though. So for a lot of people through the centuries, this was a book that caused much consternation. This wasn't a book where people looked at and it was beloved, and I think today many of us esteem it. Many of us love it. It's an amazing love story, right, to some extent, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it is. It's a good story. So let's, can I give you a little background to start out? I hope you stay with me. Again, this is the intro. Next week is more of the experience, and you're going to be like, wow, where is he taking me on this this little journey? But for this week, I'm starting with some of the background, and then I want to get to the real point, the real main message of this book. So I will stop abruptly at a point in the first chapter where you probably will least expect it, and then I'll go into what I think is the major theme of the book of Esther. Now here, to give you a little background of this book, if you look on the map there in front of you, this is a picture for many years before the story of Esther begins, the Jews had a civil war, right? And this civil war... It caused a dividing of the kingdom, the Jewish people. And you see up there, the northern part, right? You have was known as, that was Israel, okay? That was the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah, Now, in both of these kingdoms, stay with me for a little while. It'll be worth it for you. Stay with me. In both of these kingdoms, there was rampant apostasy, disobedience. I mean, you have many of the kings, right, fell away and really weren't even following God. The idolatry, I mean, it was quite pervasive, right? The northern kingdom, eventually, God was so fed up with their disobedience. And I'm giving you the Real Reader's Digest. God was so fed up with their disobedience that he gave them over to a group of people called the Assyrians. How many of you have heard that name before, a group of people, right? So the northern kingdom falls. They're given over to the Assyrians. About a 100 years later, and this is where the, the light bulbs will go off, and you'll go, ah. The southern kingdom, right, was given over to the Babylonians. Who was the first king of the Babylonians? Nebuchadnezzar in 597, right? So, 597, and what book did we do recently where we delved into this and we looked at the Babylonian Empire? The book of Daniel, right? So, in 597, that happens, and King Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, and he takes captive many of the Israelites, and he takes them back to Babylon with him, right? He comes back almost 10 years later, about a decade later, and he raises Jerusalem to the ground. The temple takes things from the temple. I mean, this is a really rough time in the history of the children of Israel, the Jewish people. So the kingdom is divided there. Eventually, eventually, the Babylonians will be taken over by, they will be conquered by the Medo-Persians, the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, the first king that we see that's important for us, that is listed in this story, is a king by the name of Darius. And Darius will rule for 36 years, and then eventually, I promise I'm about done, he will, he will give up his kingdom, he bequeaths his kingdom before he's going to die, and he gives it to one of many kids, and he gives it to his one son, Xerxes, oh, how many of you are familiar with that name, Xerxes. Some of you, some of you not. All right. Well, he's a name that we're, we're going to see in the, in the story. Now, giving you that just little bit of history, and I'll give you a little bit more as we get into the text. Let me start in the first chapter. Let's start. We're going to look at the first three verses. Then I'll stop and I'll explain some things. So this is the beginning of the book of Esther and in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, which is modern-day Iran today. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. All right, so what do we have here? We have this Xerxes character. How many of you saw the movie 300? How many... People saw the movie that came out, maybe, uh, it was rated R. I don't know why so many of you watched it. Uh, so the movie came out maybe a decade ago, somewhere around there, right? You remember some of those, 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 those great scenes in there? We are Sparta, right? He kicks the guy into the, I don't know, the abyss. Uh, but this is the story of Xerxes. Now, this is what is interesting to me. D- does that, are you shocked to hear this? Did you know that Hollywood gets history wrong sometimes? I know a lot of you are like, really? Come on, really? Are you serious right now? Yeah, Hollywood will get history wrong. This is what the real Xerxes looked like and what we think he looked like. Uh, his hair is kind of quaffed out. Um, he wasn't very tall. He was kind of short. He was said to be extremely handsome. He doesn't look too handsome to me, um, although he does have some facial hair, so I'm feeling that today. Uh, but this is the Xerxes that we know from history, Okay. This is the Xerxes that you see in the movie 300. Wait a second. They look like twins. They look like, right? They look like, oh man, it looks like the same person. In the movie, the Xerxes in 300 is like 13 feet tall. The real Xerxes is not that tall. Um, This guy, I don't know. He's got a lot of bling. He's got a lot of jewelry on. Like, I... He looks, kind of, he looks kind of cool to me, right? But he doesn't look anything like the real Xerxes we know from history, right? This is the, so the first guy, this is the real deal. This is exactly what he looked like. Now, this is his empire, right? His empire, this is the known world, all right? His empire stretches all the way from India, right? Stretches from India over here, all the way over here to Greece, There's no United States at this time. There's no Latin America. I mean, this is the world. This guy controls, basically, the world. He is the executive, he is the legislative, and he is the judicial branch of government. He is a despot. He rules everything. He has a totalitarian regime. If he doesn't like what you have to say, if he doesn't like what you're doing, he's going to get rid of you. That's it. Final say. He controls everything in this society. So he is a man that you didn't want to get on his bad side. And in the movie, if you remember in the movie, and this is what I remember from the movie, and this is like, how many of you, did anybody try the workout, by the way? Did you ever try the 300 workout? Yeah, I tried it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I blew lunch trying to do the workout. And some of you like, don't know what the workout is. The workout was, you didn't stop. You did like pull-ups, then you did push-ups, and then you were doing like squats, and you did all these things, and you did, it, was like, it was like a half an hour workout. And one of my former you know, students was like, hey, why don't you try the workout with us? And I'm like, how bad can this be? Ten years ago, I'm like, you know, maybe early 30s. I can do this. I can hang with these guys. I, I couldn't do it. Absolutely couldn't do. It was one of the hardest workouts I've ever had in my life. Anybody, did you ever have a workout like that? Where you were like, some of you were like, man, I don't want to work out to begin with. Now you're talking about growing up when you work out? Really? So what was I getting to? In the movie, though, the, how many of you remember the immortals? Real history again. Now this is what Pastor Linda said before. We're talking about Genesis. I'm giving you a real history lesson today. And I know a lot of times you come in and, you know, a lot of preachers are just going to go right into the text. How can you really appreciate the story without knowing the real history behind it? So these guys were known as the immortals. How about, history tells us, Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, tells us that this guy Xerxes had a private group of soldiers called the immortals. There was a TV show, by the way, too. And they took, like, great fighting groups and they, like... Like, pitted them against each other, like who would win? That was all conjecture. You didn't really know. They they weren't alive to really see what would happen. This group, who did they go up against? Oh, the Celts. He kind of knew what was going to happen before the end of the show. But these guys, the Immortals, he had 10,000 of these guys. Now, when your name, your group name is the Immortals, you're bad. Nobody really, come on, what's the name of your group? We're the Immortals. We never die. Oh, that's good. We don't want to fight you. Can we fight somebody else? 10,000 of them, enough to fill a small stadium. They were willing to put their lives on the line for Xerxes. Wherever Xerxes went, this group of 10,000 fighting soldiers went with them. Pretty amazing, right? This is the kingdom. This is who he was. We look at today, you look at like, I don't know, maybe a rapper, or I was thinking of like Floyd Mayweather, the great boxer, and you see sometimes on like the news, and they'll have like a posse with them, and I'm like, dude, that's not a posse. This guy rolled with 10,000 people willing to give up their lives at any given second for him. That's a little bit different. So he is the man, he was deified, he was looked at as being a god, everybody worshipped him, the sun rose and set on this Xerxes, he was called the king of kings, and now you look at the next part of the story, verses 4 and 5, all right, in verses 4 and 5, it says for a full 180 days, now get this, how many, day, how many months is 180 days? Good. Six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. All right. Try to understand. Now, I know all of you in it, you've never been to a party before, right? Never in your lives went to a party, right? Some of you are like laughing. Can you imagine really a six-month party? Go to college. Maybe there was a party that lasted a day. I don't know. Like you were at something that was like, or a wedding. How many of you been to a wedding and there was five hundred people and it went for like all night and you had an unbelievable time. Imagine six months of partying. This is where like this is like frat party meets Mardi Gras with open bar, right, and happy hour. You just put all those things together. This is six months of insanity. Only the men are present here, right? And we're going to get to this. Only the men are present at this party. The queen, Queen Vashti at this time, she's having her own party, Tupperware party, whatever, Arbor, I don't know. She's having her own party somewhere else. But all the men are over here, and they're partying, and... And Xerxes has it. There is unlimited food. If you want gluten-rich food, you want gluten-free food, you want wine, you want whatever there is, you can have it. There are women that are everywhere, thousands of women. Scholars tell us that he had 15,000 VIPs that were invited for this six-month party there is music going, right? This place is bumping. This place is going for six whole months. And then when the six months is done, that's not enough. He invites all the peasants, all the lowly people. Oh, now you can come for a seven-day party. This guy me, like Hugh Hefner is like a kindergartner compared to this guy. Seriously, this guy knew how to party, but for six months. And I hope nobody is in here right now thinking, man, that would be my six months of just like vacation to sit on a hammock and just drink a. Did anybody think that? No, you're in church. Of course, you're not going to admit if you really thought that. But what is this? This is a pep rally. Did he do this? You have to understand this. Does he do this because. He is so benevolent, and he is so generous. Is that why he's throwing a party like this for six months? Is it, hey, King Xerxes, oh my gosh, you're the nicest ruler. You're the best. He's doing this, A, because he wants the people to worship him. Look who's the king. Look who's the one that's giving everything that you have, every desire that you could possibly get satisfied. Where does that come from? It comes from me. I'm the one. I'm the one that takes care of you. I'm the one that takes care of this kingdom. And he also, they don't know it at this time. How many of you, a little more history here. His father in the battle of Marathon with the Greeks, lost in that battle, he now says he's going to take four years, Xerxes is going to take four years and prepare to go fight the Greeks again. He wants to defeat them, right? He's a ruler, right? He wants to take over anything, any square inch on the planet. He wants control of it. So he will spend four years at this pep rally. And the interesting thing is, when he launches this battle in 481 BC, he sends over. Now, estimates, like, they range all over the place. Anywhere between 500,000 and 2 million men, Xerxes sends to Greece to fight. You know how many men come back? Less than (laughs) 5,000. Less than 5,000. He's not going to be ruling for too much longer. He'll get assassinated later on. But I had to give you the context of what's going on here in this story. So he has the first big party. Then he has the second party, and everybody else is invited. The first party's not enough. And then you see in verses 10 and 11, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. Put the brakes on right now for a second. You know what bothers me sometimes? People will say, well, people that drank in the Bible, the wine wasn't real wine. They didn't know how to make real wine. Well, if they didn't know how to make real wine, how come King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine? King Xerxes is inebriated. King Xerxes is sloshed. King Xerxes is drunk. No, come on. I want You, you have to see that in the story. And never, here's just a little, this is like a, a side point here. I don't think anybody has ever like got, had too much to drink and said, you know what? I, I made the best decision of my life at that moment, right? So a word of caution, a word to the wise, maybe if you were drinking, you don't want to make decisions that could have consequences for you and your kingdom, like severe consequences, repercussions of that. So he commanded the seven eunuchs. Ask your parents, kids, what that is. I'm not getting into that because Pastor Linda will pull me right down. Who served him? I'm not giving you all their names. Just Where's the guy? Bigtha is my favorite. Bigtha. You want to mess with Bigtha? No, I didn't think so. And carcass, too. Hey, carcass, what's up? Hey Bigtha?? Right? Can you imagine like that? those are cool names. Those are names that you should be looking at for your kids. to bring before, the, before him, Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. You know what scholars say here? You'd miss this totally. when you read this, probably never heard this. He's asking for her to come before all he wants to, he's drunk. He wants to parade her in front of all the other men in the kingdom with just her crown on. Here comes the queen, she has no clothes on, right? That's really, in essence, what he's doing. I want to parade, look what I have, look how beautiful she is. She is the most beautiful woman in the whole kingdom. Feminists everywhere, love Queen Vashti, because what does she do? She refuses. not going to go before this king with no clothes on and just wear my crown but how will that make Xerxes he was known for his volcanic temper and it says here in verse 12 but when the attendants delivered the king's command queen Vashti refused to come then the king became furious and burned with anger of course he burned with anger his whole life nobody has ever told him no Xerxes, you can't do that. No, I can do whatever I want, right? My dad's the king. I can do whatever I want. His entire life, nobody has ever told him no. So here is the queen in this story, and she is saying, ah, I'm not going to do what you want there. Moving on, now 13 and 15, he meets with his counselors. Remember what I said before? He's a total despot. He is the executive, judicial, legislative branches. He does whatever he wants, but he has these counselors. They're like little puppets. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes. Don't you love when they talk like in the third person? We get it. We know who you are, right? He is in love with himself, okay? That the eunuchs have taken to her. So what is this guy supposed to do here? What is her punishment going to be? You want to see what her punishment is if you drop down to verse 19? Therefore, if it pleases the king, this is the counsels, let him issue a royal decree. And let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position as someone else who is better than she. Wow. This is the point we're going to stop in chapter 1. And if you're like, man, I'm not really, I'm not feeling this today. I'm not feeling this yet. Good, okay? Because you're going to feel it now. Anybody notice through the whole first chapter so far, there has been no mention of God. There has been no mention of prayer. There's no fasting. Did you know this is the only book in the Bible where God doesn't show up? God is not mentioned one time in the book of Xerxes. Prayer is not mentioned one time in the book of, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Esther. I'm saying Xerxes. See what he's done to me? Right? right? Not one time in the entire book do we see any of those things. A great pastor from, uh, maybe some of you heard his name from the 20th century, he said it this way, Ray Stedman put it like this, for many this little book is a puzzle, for it seems to be out of place in the Bible. There is no mention in it of the name of God. There is no reference to worship or to faith. There is no prediction of the Messiah. There is no mention of heaven or hell. In short, there is nothing religious about it, at least on the surface. It is a gripping tale, but one might rather expect to find it in the pages of Reader's Digest than the Bible. That sums up this book better than anything else I read. I said, this that, that says it all to me. The title of this sermon today, the first part of the series, is The Sovereignty of God. Or I should say, maybe even the silent sovereignty of God. Because it seems when you look at this story here, it seems as if God is nowhere to be found. Are you a deistic God? Are you just kind of aloof? Are you out there somewhere? Do you see? Do you know? Do you care? And how many of us, in times of trouble, in times of despair, we have asked that same question. God, where are you in my story? Because I don't see you anywhere. Where are you? You seem absent. You seem silent. And God, I need a word from you. I need to hear you. I want to see you. I want to speak to you. But he's nowhere to be found. Just like in this story. He's not on the pages of scripture. So what are we supposed to do with that? I put before you today the brilliance of this story. The brilliance of this story is the fact that God's name is not mentioned. That's what makes this story amazing. Did you know even Esther's name? Now, her Hebrew name was Hadassah. But her, when she becomes queen, you're not even meeting her today. You're going to meet her. Trust me, you're going to meet her in an unbelievable way next week. Her name means something hidden. One, one Jewish scholar says her name really means something hidden and I love that because this is the book where things are not as they appear. Things are not like what there's more than meets the eye. You see God is working behind the scenes. God is silhouetted, right? You see a painting sometimes and you can see everything, but God, it kind of looks like he's not really there, but he is indeed there in our lives. It may look like we don't, he's nowhere to be found, but God says no. I am there behind the scenes. I know exactly where you are. I know exactly what is going on in your life. And we have to believe that that happens for a reason. We have to believe that. There are no coincidences in life. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary uh, to China, there was a story that was shared about him. There was once a young man who was kind of searching for God. He heard about Hudson Taylor and that the amazing relationship that he had with God. He heard about his missionary journeys and all the great things that had taken place. So he visited Taylor and he said, sir, I want to see God. I have searched for him. I can't find him. Can you show him to me? Show him to me. I want to see him. And with that, Taylor kind of just sized the man up and he looked over the man and overhead there were trees then he looked over another direction, and he saw some kids playing, and he looked in another direction, and he saw some other people, and then he looked over, he looked all around them, and he said, sorry, I can't help you. Looked back on the, on the, uh, the young man, and the young man was ira- incensed. What do you mean? You're supposed to have the secrets. You're supposed to have the key. Come on. Can't you tell me? What is it? How do you know God like this? Please help me. And he looked at him and he said, the reason I can't help you see is because I see him everywhere I look. I don't understand how you miss him. If you don't see him anywhere, I can't help you. How true is that of life? God is everywhere to be seen. And you hear that question all the time. Where is God? I just want to see him. I just want to know that he's real. And I would say, God is making himself real to us day after day. When you leave here, it's Les Mis. It's Victor Hugo. It's when you see somebody else. To look into the eyes of another is to see the face of God. Everywhere we look, everywhere we see, God is there. God is present. It doesn't matter where you are. God is there. I read an amazing book, and I'm kind of, I didn't plan on sharing this, but the book is called Deep Dark Down. And I I read a lot, but this book about the Chilean miners, how many of you remember the story of the 33 Chilean miners? There haven't been many recently books that it just, it lit my world. This is like, I mean, this is a pretty, it's a secular author. This story, and I don't want to give you too much because I'm definitely using it in the sermon and I have an idea for it. But these 33 guys that were trapped on the ground for 69 days. 69 days, and one of the guys that is down there, right, again, try to, like, in a mine, they're almost five miles below the surface, did you get that? Five miles, and they're down there in deplorable conditions, they don't have much food, and one of the guys is down there, and they call him El Pastor, right, they they say, you're the pastor, you teach us and here are these guys, before they know, before they know they're going to be rescued, here they are, they meet, they're on their knees, and they're praying every single day, it doesn't matter where you are, they're in the five miles below the earth's surface, and there they are, meeting 33 guys, simple guys, and they're on their knees, crying out to God, and he would tell them story about the feeding of the 5,000, and the Good Samaritan, and this, and that, he would just keep going on, and to every single, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more, and I said, man, there is nowhere, that you could... God's presence was so Rich and it was so full down there, a place that it was so least likely to be. But that's where these men touch God. Their lives changed when they came back up on the surface and money was thrown into the equation. Everything got out of whack then. And then all the problems that they had with each other, they came to the surface again. They didn't pray together. They didn't spend time together after that. And it broke my heart too because I said, What about us as a church? How about us? Are we really in the trenches together? How about in your hill house, even outside of your hill house? We always say it, but church is much more than just coming here and talking to each other and having some cake after the meeting and then going to a hill house for a little while. How many of us are really in the trenches together? I cried as I read the book. I said, these guys, here they are. They're in community with each other. And then when things happen and they they they, communication after like 20 days, they're communicating with people up top. And they can talk to their loved ones, and they're, they're on TV, and then everything changed. And I said, how come persecution, how come hardship, how come that brings us to a place where we need God, and we see God, and we feel God? I watched a, I watched a, a documentary last night, too. This is more fun to go off on like, like this. There was a documentary I watched last night. I binged. Instead of doing stuff for this, I, I spent a lot of time on, on the sermon during the past few months. But there was, there was documentaries, and one of the documentaries is called The Holy Ghost. We're going to be using it with the, uh, it was all on the Holy Spirit. And they had the, it, 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 where do I start? There was this guy that was, a, he's a scholar. And he's talking about it, he's saying, you know what, there has to be more of a, a merging of the word and the spirit. They need to come together. And that's where the re- next revival will hit. When that really happens. When we really can study the word as a people. But we can also understand that God's miracles and his gifts are still for today. You can have a marriage of both of those things working together. And the whole thing. Listen. He, t- he said at one point. He goes. He goes. It's become God the father. God the son. And then God the bible. To so many Christians. In America. And it hit me. And I said, oh my gosh, that's so true. I said, Lord, oh, we've lost the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's alive. And he wants to move in our midst. Religion. Bono said it. Religion is when the Holy Spirit has left the building. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I didn't even pray in the beginning. Lord, Lord, I repent of that. Father, I ask that your spirit, Lord, that your spirit would move on us. Lord, we sing songs, we preach sermons. Lord, I ask that you would light a fire inside of us. Lord, a fire that a hurricane can't put out. Lord, that a tsunami can't put out, that a tornado can't put out. Lord, we want to be a people that are awake and ready. Lord, we want to be a people that experience you. I'm sick of reading about you. Lord, I want to feel you in a new way in this hour. Lord, I want to preach from power. Spirit of the living God, enliven these words, enliven anybody who's up here, Father, that you would enliven these words, you would enliven these stories, that they would come alive, that your word would come alive, that we would have an insatiable desire for more. Father, I want to be wrecked, Lord, I want to be ruined, the ordinary, Lord, I I want more than that, I want more of what I see, I want more of what I feel. Bring us into your presence, Lord, in a deeper way. I don't know. I, I, sorry, I'll get back. I, I have a little bit. I don't have a lot left, but you know, and in this documentary, they had a piece on, on the underground church movement in China, and Megan and I sat there and I watched it twice. And it was, I'm like, how am I supposed to go back and preach? How am I supposed to wake up in the morning and go into a church in North America and preach? These people, the underground church movement, they have a missionary, guy, 40 years, right? 40 years in China, get this. People, the guy came in, and all the people that were there, are you all right with this? This isn't sermon, Whatever. This, I'm just talking to you right now, okay? This isn't a normal sermon. You know what I have to get past? And I, I'm, I guess I'm telling you. I don't even know why I'm telling you. You know what's so hard for me as a preacher? Because I can get up here. I'm, I've done this long enough. I can deliver sermons and, and package everything nicely and put the bow on it. But it's getting harder. It's getting harder for me. I don't know. It's just getting harder for me to do that every Sunday because I know there's more. There's more. There's more for us. Whatever, anyway. Burn this. Turn this off. I don't even know why. Like, this should not be getting taped. I don't want this taped. So in China, Right? how about people? The guy comes in. He said he came in this building. He said he could like touch the people in the first row. He's, his back is against the wall. And they asked him if he could preach from 7 in the morning to 8.30 at night. And then they said, kind of sheepishly, is there any way that you can preach tomorrow from 7 to 8.30? Oh, and if, if you don't mind, can you, the third day, can you preach from 7 to 8.30? They said four-hour sermons is short. You're looking at my sermon or Tom's sermons, and you're going, man, they're at like 40 minutes. When is this sermon going to end? And it's not your fault. It's the culture that we live in. If it's not a move by the Holy Spirit, then it's going to be the same old thing. We have to be brought to our knees. I prayed for persecution last night. I prayed that something would happen to make America fall to their knees again. What's it going to take? Come on. 120 degrees inside the building and people there and they didn't want to leave. I saw young Chinese men and women praying out to God. They're lying to the government. They're allowed to lie in this respect, right? They were saying that this was a school for music. They're being trained there to be pastors. They were meeting in caves. People today meeting in caves. And the spirit is moving and being unleashed. They went over stories with live footage of people in Mozambique, in Africa, and other places in Africa where people were being raised from the dead. Did you hear what I said? People being raised from the dead. The stories, they went on and on. And you may say, you're a nut. You're crazy. Well, I, listen, there are things happening. We live in America. And what we see, Everything. everybody is so skeptical. There's so much unbelief out there. This is real. There is a God who is real and he wants to touch us. And miracles are for today. His power is for today. His presence is for today. It's real. I want more of it. I want more of it. So if that didn't make you want to leave and not listen to another sermon I ever preach. I don't know. <sighs> Let me just get to the end of the story here now can I just get to the end the last thing I wanted to leave you with from this a sermon that probably makes no sense now um, this is the heart of what I see at, at the book of Esther the heart of what I see is there is a God behind the scenes and he's moving this is one of my favorite passages and, and I've preached on this before but I think we should be we should talk about it constantly it's like a it's a life verse for me right? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Did you get that? All things that happen to us. It doesn't say bad things or good things. Did you hear that? Don't you leave here and say, Pastor, did you say that the bad things that happen to me are actually good things? When somebody gets cancer, when somebody dies, no, 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 those are bad things. You grieve, we grieve. No, those are bad things. But I'm saying to us today, in the totality of everything, when you look at the whole book of Esther, because when you get to the end, you see God's fingerprints were everywhere. There are no coincidences. Can I tell you right now that if the king did not get drunk in the beginning of this book, Esther never becomes a queen. And we have so many religious people in the world and they say, oh my gosh, what is this? And she sleeps with the king. Yeah, you know what? I'm not for what she did with the king, but God used it in her life. And she, he used it in the lives of the children of Israel and she saved everybody. Are you kidding me? The Feast of Perim, which we're going to get into. There's so much. This is loaded, this story. The Feast of Perim, the Jewish people, they celebrate this. And this is the time when you look at the book of Esther, where they celebrate God's people were saved by this woman. Yes, a woman that went in and slept with the king. No coincidences. None. You look at your life. You think, you know what? You think you wrote yourself out of God's script. Some of you feel as if you wrote yourself out of God's script, and I'm here to tell you the first week, the first message in this series, you can't write yourself out of his script. I don't care what you did. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you think. I don't care what somebody told you. Your story is not over. That's the book of Esther. God is always working behind the scenes. And we see things as life goes on, as time goes on. Rabbi Harold Kushner, I hope I can get this right. It just, pops in, it just popped in my head. He said, life is like a great book. The, the, the further you get in, the more you understand. And I said to myself, oh my God, that's a little bit like this First, We don't see everything, but as time goes on, right? As time goes on, we see things and look back and go, what were you doing right there? gosh, what were you doing in my story? What were you doing in the story of my kids? What were you doing in the story of our church? What were you doing in the story of America when it seemed like there was a drought, when it seemed like things were over, and it seemed like there was no turning back, and it seemed like it was the end? That's all, folks. What were you doing? God says, I was there the whole time. I knew exactly what was going to happen. Isn't that the greatness of the story? And look at Tim Keller. Tim Keller puts it so well when he says this. He says, one of the main reasons Christians are continually overthrown is not simply because bad things happen to them. At least half of their discouragement and despondency is due to their surprise at the bad things that happen to them. Wow. That that could be a sermon all in itself. I could just leave you right there and go, have a great day. Serious. Look at that. Are you kidding me? How true is that? And I've experienced this in my own life. And you look at things so much and we go, why did this happen to me? Oh, but but I'm a good person and she's a good person and he's a good person. Why do these things ever happen to me? Just because you're a Christian does not mean you will not experience real hardship and persecution. I just said to you before, just using China as an example, other places in the world where people are facing persecution, where people don't have it easy, they have it rough, but they know God in a way and I'm watching, I'm going, I want to know God the same way they do. I want more of that. And he Here I am in comfort, ease, and security. Here we are. And it's not doing anything for us. We need to be made uncomfortable, church. We need to be made uncomfortable in American society. The age of materialism and avarice, it's everywhere. It's all over the place, how prevalent it is. And we're all affected by it. I'm affected by it. you preacher. I'm affected by it. We all are. But it's time we wake up. One and only life. This is our one and only life. What are we doing with it? I've wanted to take this verse, though, at times, I'll be honest, too. I've wanted to take this verse. At times, I'm like, oh, I love this verse. And other times, I want to rip it out of my Bible. Recently, not too long ago, I wanted to rip it out of my Bible. What do you mean? Everything works for good. For those that love you and are called according to your purpose. This didn't work out. When is this going to work out, God? Where are you? I don't understand. Where are you? Yeah, music team, you can come up. Where are you in this situation? You know, and I thought of this too. One author said this is a good activity and maybe you want to do this. He said, fold, and I did this this morning at the gym. Fold a piece of paper on top, write about the worst things that have ever, ever happened to you. Worst things on the top of the paper. Fold it up. Worst things that have ever happened. And then on the bottom of the piece of paper, write the best things that have ever happened to you. And I guarantee you, when you look at the best things that have ever happened to you, many of them came out of the worst things that ever happened to you. And that's a message that we don't want to hear. It's a message that's not preached. Suffering is part of the Christian life. I looked back at my own life, and I looked at my, my teaching career. I promise, this is it, I'm done. I looked at my teaching career. I started in a school I hated. I had a terrible year. I, bro- you know, I, I broke off an engagement, so I was supposed to get married to one person. Then I look at that, and I say, well, look who I'm married to now. I look at a job. I hated my first teaching job. I wanted to leave. And now I look at it. I'm in a place I love. I'm passionate about going in and teaching. I love what I do. And I say, those things came out of hardship. I got so sick, I went to a doctor two years ago, and the doctor said, you're on no medication? Not to give you my whole medical background, but the doctor said, you're on no medication? for you. Yeah, but I said, I'm on no medication. And I've learned, and I know what I can eat, and I know what I can't eat, and I know what I have to do. And there are a lot of days, as Megan can tell you, that are challenging. I don't talk about it much, but they're challenging. But I can tell you this, that when I got sick 19 years ago, it was on this weekend 19 years ago, I thought about crying as I'm running this morning, They had a leader's meeting at the house. I'm in another room in the house, and I hear them in that room. And I just got in my Bible. I was despondent. I didn't want to go to work the next day. I was so sick. I couldn't even eat. And that's when God came alive to me as I opened up the Word, and I never forgot it. And from that moment on, I've wanted and chased after him. And I'm not saying I wanted to call sickness into my life. But if it wasn't for that, something everybody says is horrible, look what has come about from it. I'm still a work under construction. I'm still a train wreck in many ways. But man, I love God and I want more of him. How about as we come to the table this morning, can you do that? Why don't you make a list even this week? Why don't you make a list of the worst things that have ever happened to you? And then on the bottom, make a list of the best things that have ever happened to you. How about doing that in our hill houses? How about, how about talking about that? How about stop talking about all the surface stuff in life? The Jets are done. The Giants are done, right, as usual. They're not playing in the Super Bowl sports. Let's talk about real meaningful stuff. Let's talk about real stuff. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Stuff that really affects and impacts us. Come on. Lord, again, Lord, I pray with everything that is within me. Father, I've lit myself on fire with this story. Lord, and I want to see it burn out, Lord, as John Wesley said when he preached. Father, I come in the line of all these saints from the past, Lord, that got up in pulpits and people around the country and the world even today as they got up in their churches. Lord, may your spirit reside here. May we feel it. May you move here, Lord. Father, we want to experience, Lord. May may we be part of the revival, Lord, that's coming. Father, I ask that things would happen in our midst. We don't want the same old ordinary things. Why can't we see your power, Lord? Lord, show off your power. Show off your majesty. Show off that you're real. We come against all the unbelief and the skepticism, Lord, that is not only in this room, Lord, but is outside. We come against it in the power of Jesus, Lord. We take your blood over every single mind that is here. Lord, make us aggressive. Make us aggressive in talking, Lord, with our colleagues and our family members that don't know you and they're far from you. May we not give up. May we not give in. May we keep praying and holding on to you. May we still believe, even though, Lord, you're in the shadows and we don't know, we don't see. Lord, may we know that you still are there. You are the God of the impossible. You are the God of the in-between, Lord. We thank you. We love you. But, Lord, we want more of you. More. That's the word, Lord, more. Amen. Ushers. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.